If you've invested in your business, chances are you've funded future growth potential through leverage and after filling out loan applications and undergoing credit checks. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. When I sit down and think about the people that I really want to speak to, the people I really want to interview, in my top 10 of people in the world that I'd want to speak to, you're about to hear a snippet, a short conversation with one of those people. Shane Parrish is the founder of Farnham Street, the world's most read blog on things like clear thinking and mental models, decision making, and these types of things. The website can be found at fs.blog. Shane was once described by Business Insider as Wall Street's biggest influencer. His podcast, The Knowledge Project, has been downloaded over 35 million times, and his brain food newsletter, which goes out every week, has over 600,000 subscribers. All that said, I still think Shane's best days are ahead of him because I still think his website is the best in the world. Shane's work has been featured in nearly every major global publication, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times. If you Google spy, Wall Street Journal, and Farnham Street, there'll be a really interesting article that pops up that basically outed Shane as being a former spy, turned blogger, turned avid reader and educator for CEOs and executives right around the world. I really do hope that this podcast is the first of many that I can get to do with Shane because he's just a wonderful thinker about really complex problems. So this interview isn't that long, but if you want to learn more about Shane and all of his wonderful work, I highly encourage you to pick up his latest book, Clear Thinking, and even consider subscribing to the fs.blog website. You'll find a few resources in the show notes covering some of the things we talk about in today's episode. These will help you become a better thinker and probably a better person as a result. It's a wonderful conversation with Shane Parrish, and I'm so delighted that he was able to join me uh, while he has such a busy schedule, given his book is a New York Times bestseller and has just launched. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Shane Parrish of Farnham Street. The area where I wanted to start, Shane, actually, was the the book itself, Clear Thinking. 
might as well get the title in at the start of the show. Um, I remember hearing, I think it was a podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I think it was a podcast. Maybe he was just tweeting about it or something. And he's obviously written a book and he's got a wonderful podcast and network that he's developed now. And I remember him saying something to the effect of this new medium of podcasting is very special in that he can record an hour or two hour podcast and it can go to tens of thousands of people um, versus the, the return on effort from writing a book. Um, yeah, I think Annie Duke would call it resulting if <laughs> if if you say like, oh yeah, my, my book, uh, you know, New York Times bestseller list, um, fantastic. I think you've done uh, book launches in London and in the US, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. And I'm just curious how you thought about making the decision to write another book, like the effort involved. When you've got so much else that you're doing, that's wonderful. Well, I think you have to look at what your goal is. And, you know, if you can't see what other people are chasing, what they're doing might not make sense to you on a pure, immediate, short-term opportunity cost basis. It might not be the best use of my time. On a long-term uh, basis, trying to make the world a better place, I think it might be a great use of my time. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that I want to do is equalize opportunity, not outcomes, and put a dent in that. And everything we do is about equalizing opportunity through the podcast, through the newsletter, through the website. We put that information out there mostly for free. And we want everybody to have access to high quality, really high quality sources of information, whether it's guests on our podcast that run public companies, or it's sort of reflections and timeless wisdom that come in our newsletter that inspire and also give you insight that you can use in your daily life and work. The book is a mechanism where I've looked into something for 15 years and have a very unique take on it that was practical and useful to me. I didn't know if it would be practical and useful for other people. Part of the reason I wanted to share it was I wanted to synthesize all this information in my head. I thought I knew it, but we always think we know something until we start writing about it. And writing is the process by which we come to understand that we don't always know what we're talking about. And it's also the process by which we discover new ideas about a subject we think we already know fairly well. And so the book gave me an opportunity to synthesize the knowledge that I've built up over 15 years and share it in a very different perspective than I've ever seen approached before. I remember telling my publisher, this book will be, uh, if it's a failure, it'll be an original failure because it takes a very different tactic or approach, I guess, to this subject that I've never seen done before. Do you, did you, sorry, what was that, Shane? Well, I was going to say most books on decision-making are all about here's how you be more rational. And this book is different. Mm. And it takes the approach that there's three aspects to sort of clear thinking, which is one, how you position yourself two, how you manage the urges and defaults that get other people in trouble, including yourself. And three, how do you think independently? And so it, it takes the approach of creating space between a stimulus and response but it also takes the approach of rewinding and thinking about the position that you're in before something happens. And I think that too many books are, are very, you know, calculate this and go to the nth degree in that and fill out a spreadsheet. And we've made this very academic because um, I guess people get paid to teach it. But the flip side is when you look at the very best people in the world, which I'm super fortunate to have access to, uh, they don't ever do any of this stuff. 
And mm -hmm. you have to think like, what is it about them that gives them an edge and an advantage? Why do they consistently make better decisions than other people? And is there something I can learn from that and apply to my life? There's, there's so much we're going to talk about how um, reading plays a role in this as well. Um, and I remember reading a blog post that you did quite a while ago, I think it was, and you mentioned all the books on your bookshelf and how you love to look at them. Um, I imagine there's like a couple of special spots on that shelf now um, when you can sit down and you can put one of these on there and you can think that's wonderful. I'm curious, how do you, how do your kids, how would your kids describe what you do? Pretty boring. I mean, before the New York Times article, they didn't have any clue what I, I did. And then the New York Times came out and they outed me as a spy. Mm. And I remember a few weeks after that happened, they had like Google your dad day at school. Cause obviously I hadn't told them about this and they came home and they were like, what you were a spy. And then I was like cool in their eyes for a whole like 25 seconds, I think. And then all of a sudden we went back to boring. Um, it's nice that I can create something that's tangible that they can see and feel, but they also grow up in a world where tangible is less important than it was maybe when we were kids. Um, so my kids, I mean, they grow up in a world where things are, are intangible. They read comments online though, and not all those comments are pleasurable. Uh, I remember them coming home and asking me about some of the comments they read online. And that was a great prompt for a couple of things. One in terms of self-resilience and, and how you can, um, handle comments like that in the future because people if you do anything outside of ordinary no matter what you're trying to do people are going to comment on it they're going to chirp at you they're going to try to pull you down they're going to say something nobody leaving comments i like i've yet to meet somebody leaving comments who's in the arena actually doing something who's struggling to do the same thing that you're doing who's ahead of you like nobody is doing that you're rooting for the people if you're doing that so one it's that and two it's like well how do you think about leaving comments right and how do you think that makes other people feel and what's the impact of that and i'm lucky that i can put up a wall and i just don't give a fuck what other people say because if you let other people dictate how you live your life you are going to live an average life. I do not want to do the same things that other people do. Thereby, I have to be able to do things that other people aren't doing. And that means financially, I have to put myself in a situation where I can do that. But it also means psychologically, I have to put myself in a situation where I can handle looking like an idiot in public, where I can handle failing in public, where I can handle all these things that come with what I'm doing. Hmm. Um. And you do do something. I, I, I had, on the Tim Ferriss podcast interview uh, a month or so ago, you were talking about how you're looking for these complex and obscure challenges and just trying to find ways to pull them apart effectively, um, which we'll get to in a moment. But one of the things you touch on in the book um, is this idea of having a personal board of directors. And as I was mm. thinking about this, I, I realized like with our company, there actually isn't a board of directors. It's literally me. Speaking of being in the ring, I feel like I'm just in the ring with blindfolded, just swinging my arms around, hoping that um, something lands or, or what have you. But I, I find that my personal board of directors would probably be my wife. Um, but then I look to people via distance through reading, through listening. Um, maybe I you know see people in the in the news or 
attend an analyst call or something like this and I can kind of absorb what they um, give out publicly. And that's like this whole thing, like you're saying with online. But I'm curious if, if, if you would share like who you think should be, well, who is on your board of directors, but just generally where this concept comes from and how it helps us improve kind of our standing. Well, so a couple of reasons. One, you grow up in a world and you adopt standards of the family that you grew up in. These are like unwritten rules about how to live and what to do and how to handle situations. You didn't choose them. Uh, odds are they are not the best in the world at what they do. Odds are you grew up, you, you know, you're super fortunate. You grew up in Australia and uh, you probably, your parents have uh, fairly average standards of themselves and, and you, right? And maybe they have higher standards and maybe they have lower standards. That's all luck. At some point you take control of your life and you're in charge of your life. And what is the way that I can have higher standards for myself? Well, I can work with somebody amazing and I've been super fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with several people who I would consider the best in the world at what they do. And working with those people, the one thing that becomes immediately obvious is that they are always holding themselves and you to a higher standard than you even thought possible in most cases. They don't care about your excuses. They don't care about all this other stuff. If you look at any athlete like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, you know, if you showed up to practice and you weren't giving it a hundred percent, they went after you. They wanted to embarrass you. Why? Because their standard was so much higher. They didn't want to embarrass you. They wanted you to hold yourself accountable to a different level. You can. So how do you create this for yourself? If you're not lucky enough to be born into a family and you're not lucky enough to work with somebody who's literally world-class at what they do, well, you can adopt a personal board of directors. And the other problem a personal board of directors solves is one of perspective. The source of all problems in decision-making is blind spots. Think about it that way. That's a really interesting way to think about it. If you had perfect information, you would always make the best decision. In a poker game where you could see everyone's cards, you'd play your hand perfectly. You wouldn't make any mistakes. Well, life and business are the exact same way. The person with the fewest blind spots wins. So how do we eliminate blind spots? And the best way to eliminate blind spots or reduce them is to change our perspective. So if you can, you can think of a photo, right? Like knowing where to stand turns a good photo into a great one. Changing your perspective on a situation reveals critical information and offers new solutions. So now we've solved two problems with a board of directors. So how do you use and create a board of directors? Well, the way to use your board of directors, you, you know, this is a lot of investors are listening to this. So you can have Warren Buffett sitting on your board of directors. And you can go to him and say, what would Warren Buffett do in this situation? What would Warren Buffett tell me? If I went to my board and I talked to Warren and I said, here's the situation, I lay it out, I lay out all my thinking, and I say, how would Warren Buffett look at it? Well, I know enough about Warren Buffett to have a reasonable level of insight into how he would look at this situation. Well, now all of a sudden I get out of myself and I can see the problem through a new lens. And by seeing it through a new lens, I've revealed new information and new insights that might be valuable to me. I've reduced my blind spots. I think it's super powerful. You can have, and the people on your board don't have to be perfect. They can be exceptional in one area. Warren Buffett would not be on my board for how I want to run a family, but he might be on my board for how I want to think about financial decisions. 
And so you can have different members on your board. Your wife can be on your board, but you don't even need one board. You can have different boards, right? Different types of problems that you face recurringly that you want to change perspective on. You can actually create a real board of directors with people in your, your town or your city. And, and you can sort of like sit down once a month and talk through these issues and come up with a pact whereby, you know, you're not competing with each other. And what you say uh, allows you um, to be honest and insightful about the problems you're facing. And then other people can show you things that you might be missing because they're going to look at your problem and situation in a very different lens than you do. Like you're in Australia right now. I'm in New York. If I ask you like how fast we're moving, you're like, well, what are you talking about? I'm sitting in my chair. I'm sitting in a hotel room. But if we stand on the sun, we're moving at 18,000 miles an hour. So your perspective changes how you look at a situation. The goal for everybody, whether it's an investor or a family or in business or life, is to reduce your blind spots. Have you done that personally? I know, I think it, I could be wrong, Shane, but I think it was an example that you've used is, um, I could be wrong, I think it was Kahneman or something like this, um, where he would always accept, he would always say yes to meetings or yes to things on the phone. So he said, I'm not going to say yes to things on the phone. Um, uh, and so he would like put rules in place to kind of like not just kind of free up his mind for, for other things. But I'm curious, like how do you identify where some, there's a gap in your knowledge or where there's a weakness in your kind of decision-making process? Well, so let's think about this, right? The situations that tend to get us in a lot of trouble that we don't even realize get us in trouble are the, ordinary moments where the situation or circumstances are thinking for us and we're not thinking. There's four defaults I sort of lay out in the book with ego, emotion, social, and inertia. What they have in common is these situations tend to uh, prevent you from thinking or reduce your ability to think. The, the situation you just brought up is a perfect example of that. How many people listening to this podcast have said yes to something on the phone, on Zoom, uh, that they don't want to say yes to. Why do they say yes? Because we are biological creatures. We are self-preserving creatures. We want to fit in. We want people to like us. Why? Because for 10,000 years, if we didn't fit in and people didn't like us, we died. There is a tendency in ourselves to do this. You can rely on willpower to solve this problem, which is I recognize in the moment what the situation is, and I choose to take a different course of action. That's really hard. Not a lot of people can do that consistently. We can all do it when we're operating at our best, but not a lot of people can do it consistently when they're not at their best. So how do you solve this problem? You create an automatic rule and the automatic rule rewires your brain for this specific situation. You don't have to be conscious. You don't have to think about the specific situation you're in. You know, when somebody asks you to do something on the phone, you say, Hey, my rule is I never say yes on the phone. I'll have to get back to you tomorrow. And what you've done by creating that rule is you've changed your desired behavior into your default behavior. You're not, you're not relying on willpower. You're not relying on the fact that you're going to catch yourself in the moment and use um, your brains to sort of like think your way through the solution. Because, you know, in the morning at 9 a.m., you might be able to do that. But at 4 p.m., you're pretty tired. You're not thinking. You'll just say yes to get off the call and make it go away. And so we end up in these situations all over our life. I mean, I have automatic rules around sort of investing in an index fund every month, going to the, I work out every day. My rule is I, I work out every day. Why do I work out every day? Because it's easier for me to work out seven days a week than it is three. When I used to work out three days a week, 
I would wake up on Monday. I'd be like, oh, I had a long weekend. I'm tired. I got a lot of work to do. And I would start negotiating with myself about something Mm -hmm. I committed to, to myself. And I would convince myself that, hey, I'll do it tomorrow. But when tomorrow came, you know, it's the same problem. So I went to the gym uh, and I said, how many days have I been here in the last year? Uh, I know I should be there about 150. Like, what, what have I actually been? And it was like 80 something. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm really, I'm really not following this. And this was during COVID. So I wasn't traveling. There's no other excuse other than I just didn't go. And so I wasn't following my own thing. And then what I did was I came up with a rule. I'm like, I'm going to create a rule that I work out every day. The, the duration or scope of what I'm doing can change. But the fact that I exercise doesn't change. Some days I go for a run. Some days I just do, I'm in a hotel room. Some days I just do push-ups and sit-ups and squats in a hotel room for 20 minutes. Some days I go to the gym for an hour. Some days I, I just go into a sauna for 45 minutes. It doesn't matter what it is. I know I have to do it. So when I wake up in the morning, the question becomes, where do I fit it in? And what's the scope and duration of, of how that looks? And that changes everything. I think I've missed like four days in like two years now. And it changes everything because it's like something, you know, and you don't think about it because how many times have you thought about rules? You just follow them. You've been taught your whole life to follow these rules, but you've never been taught. How can I make these rules to take advantage of situations? How can I turn my desired behavior into my default behavior? And how can I opt out of these situations where emotion might be in charge? So example, like a stop loss is a rule that automatically sells your shares because you're probably hyper emotional and you're convincing yourself that maybe it'll come back or the situation will change or you start talking to yourself and negotiating with yourself, even though you know the best thing to do is cut your losses and move on. One of the lines that I had in my notes is uh, the strength of character comes from habits and this idea of habit forming and the rules kind of help in a sense to do that. It's interesting you say like one, at least exercise one day you know, every day, sorry. And um, that's something that I'm on at the moment. I, I thought to myself, you know what, between now and Christmas, I'm going to try and get in shape a little bit. And I'm not going to push myself too much, but I'm just going to make a very simple rule that I will do it every day until the end of the year. And when I spoke to someone about this, she was like, well, that seems like a lot. You're going to burn out. You're going to do this type of thing. I'm like, well, there's no rule. There's no secondary rules, no derivative of, of this that says, it needs to be for 45 minutes, high intensity, and your Apple Watch should be beeping at you by the end kind of thing. It's There was nothing like that. It was literally like, this is my rule. I want to form the habit. One of the things, Shane, I really want to talk to you about is reading. Um, I, You don't know this, but um, for many years when I was studying and beginning my career and starting this company uh, all the way down here in Australia, I would get up every single day and I would read the Farnham Street website for an hour at least every single day. And I'm a very slow reader, by the way, so there's that. Um, but I would read it every single day. And that's why nowadays I tell people that it is, I think, the best website on the internet for anyone that is a professional, a person that's interested in personal growth about thinking better. I think fs.blog is a wonderful URL and the, 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 the kind of everything that you embody when you bring your kind of your frameworks and your models to life, even if you would say that it's from someone else and so on and so forth, uh, I think is a wonderful thing. And what I keep coming back to is when I've heard interviews of that you've done over the years or when you've spoken, I keep coming back to this idea that, you know, it all kind of starts with the source material and what you're feeding your brain. And at 
here at Rask, we've um, this year alone we've given away over a thousand books to people that either come to our events and, and things like this, and we've got another two hundred to go before the end of the year. So there'll be more clear thinking to be given away as well. Um, Amazing. I, I'm curious, like when people, if if I'm delivering this to you, everyone that listens to this is probably one of those people that's maybe growth focused, wants to do better, wants to improve their thinking. Um, just wants to improve outcomes basically in their life and the life of others. But where for people that do struggle to find the time to read or find the focus to read, how do we develop that habit? How do we start with that? Like I know you have some blogs, which I'll refer to on the website. They'll be in the show notes, but can you talk to that for a moment? Well, a couple of comments, right? Uh, One of which is how do we start a habit that we want to do? You make it easy. Put a book on your nightstand, commit to reading five pages a day, then commit to 10 pages a day, then commit to 25 pages a day, commit to whatever number that you can sustain. And I think that you make it a rule. So you don't make it a habit. Habit is like really hard to sort of like, it has all these weird connotations about it. You make it a rule or a ritual. You make it part of your bedtime ritual. So you brush your teeth, you get in bed, you read five pages, or maybe you read five pages downstairs, then you brush your teeth, whatever your personal ritual is, you just add five pages. And before you know it, after 20 days, now you've got a hundred pages. After two months, you've read a book. So this becomes a powerful way to fulfill your commitment to yourself. The problem with most reading is that people start reading a book, we have really good intentions, and then the book sucks. (laughs) And we put it down, and then we don't start another book because we feel bad. We've been brought up our whole life that you have to finish books. And you don't have to finish it. Like If the book isn't pulling you into it, (laughs) just get rid of it. I mean, the opportunity cost of reading is so high, right? The opportunity cost of reading a new book is the best book you've ever read. So it has a pretty high bar to sort of meet that threshold. I read a lot. I read widely. I skim a lot. Uh, I go through things. But like when I read deeply, um, I know that the book is going to be good. You don't have to read every book the same way. That's another like lesson that we learn in school that sort of undermines reading, which is you know, we're taught to read every word and to think about every paragraph and, and, you know, read very slowly and methodically. You'd be much better served to buy a lot of books, skim them, and then read the best ones, uh, and then read the best ones in detail. And I think that the approach to reading uh, can change, right? So again, coming back to the, the workouts, right? Workout every day, duration scope can change, read every day. But that doesn't mean you have to read the same way that you think you've been you've been taught to read your whole life. Some days you're going to want to read really deeply and some days you're not. And that's cool too. So you can skim a lot of books and be like, oh, that's on a pile to read later. And the book, a good book pulls you in and a bad book is a slog. It's like carrying a wheelbarrow through quicksand or something. Like, And when you feel that feeling, just put the book down. Like it sucks. Why, why read that? There's thousands of books out there. There's got to be a better one for you. Uh, and I think that that's a good approach for that. Do you blend fiction with nonfiction? No, I don't tend to read a lot of fiction. I would like to read more fiction. I, I just haven't found the right vector. It's kind of like uh, scotch or whiskey, right? Like for years, I didn't like it. And then somebody gave me uh, like a sherry cast one. And I was like, oh, this is actually kind of good. And then all of a sudden, like the whole world of scotch opened up. Mm. And, you know, the same thing with fiction. You have to find the right piece of fiction, I think, to pull you in and, and get you interested. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, 
your answer there kind of encapsulates the story that you've told before, which is the story of, it, it may not be your first book, but it was one of the books which I, 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 by the sounds of it, kind of changed the trajectory of your life. So maybe this is a good segue into that is, can you just kind of recount that story for us? And um, I refer people back to the, the Tim Ferriss uh, interview that you did, or if t- obviously to Farnham Street to to learn more about you. But um, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because we again, we do have a lot of people that kind of need that book that breaks them in, and we do feel guilty. I remember Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance took me like four summers to read because every time I picked it up, I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. I should have probably read it back to front, to be honest with you. But um, can you just share how you got into that, into the kind of the, the mindset that reading can open a new world for you and how that kind of snowballed from there. Oh man, I'd love to say it was a conscious choice, but it was luck. I, I had a very, um, I was not a good student. I was getting in a lot of trouble at school through coincidence or I don't know, circumstance for whatever reason, I ended up picking up a book called the stopwatch gang when I was in grade eight. And to put things in perspective, if I continued down the path I was on in grade eight, I'd probably be in prison right now. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't have graduated probably grade 10, let alone grade eight. And I just fell in love with this book. And it was a true crime book. And I think that was the vector. Remember I said, like, you need a vector. Just one thing that opens up this whole world. And that book through luck. I mean, it prevented me from going out with my friends that night because I wanted to finish the book. And they ended up doing something incredibly stupid, got in a lot of trouble. And I was saved because I was reading and I wanted to finish the book. Had I not been reading that, my whole life would be completely different today. And I I can't understate the role of luck, but what it did do was open up a, a, a door for me to escape the life that I was living it opened up a door for me where I could escape the situation I was in uh, from a home point of view, where I could escape the situation that I was in from a school point of view, where all my teachers hated me for good reason. Of course they hated me. I was that kid. And, you know, the next vector for me, uh, reading turned into reading a lot, which turned into wanting to get a job to buy books, uh, which turned into buying a computer, Uh, which turned into me staying up all night playing on a computer when I should have been like asleep, which turned into a very poor grades, but no more trouble in school. Uh, And I think that that turned into my computer science degree, right? So it all sort of uh, flows into one another, these little moments in life that make a big difference. But for me, it was an escape from uh, reality. And that was the point of the book. And, uh, you know, I, I, was like, oh, these cops are idiots. And you know, you get your brain working. You're like, how would I do it? How would I do it differently? And how would I catch these criminals? And you start thinking about that. And you know, that that sort of mindset led me to work for an intelligence agency. And so um, it all kind of flows from that book, which you can sort of walk yourself back to. Uh, and that lucky night where I was one chapter away from finishing when my friends knocked on the door with their dirt bikes and asked me to come out and mm. get into shenanigans with them. Mm. Um, one more question on this, this, the kind of the, the information we consume. And I, I think about this a lot. Like I think about the period of my life where I would read Morgan's writing, listen to invest like the best, like it was my religion, um, read Farnham straight. Um, and the, the, I was kind of like feeding my brain all this information and 
I obviously I just felt like I couldn't get enough of it every, each and every day. I was like, go get a coffee down the cafe, get up early. And it was a ritual for me, as you would say. Um, but the, 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 the thing that happens after that is obviously you put this information in, it's about how you organize it and the mental models on the website and the book previously, um, this is all available for people, which I'll, again, I'll put links in the show notes, but how do you practice? Like, how do you, I guess, is there a method that you use to help you remember what you read, um, how you can crystallize ideas? Because you have a wonderful ability to kind of distill complex and obscure concepts that are really difficult to solve, or maybe there is no solution. And you deliver that in a way which is understandable for people like myself and hundreds of thousands of other people. So, I'm curious, like what method you use to break that down as you kind of snowball through life, how, how you go about that? Well, let's think about the problem going back to maybe uh, closer to first principles. So we all consume information. I think we have to look at the lead domino here, which is like, what information are we consuming? Who is the source of that information? Are they credible sources of information? Or is it like a journalist who writes about 50 different topics a year? Uh, and you cannot get good information from a bad source. Uh, and bad sourcing means like um, an ignorant person. And I don't mean this like a literal ignorant person, but somebody, I, I learned this at the intelligence agency when I wasn't getting the information I needed to make decisions. I was relying on somebody to, to give me that information but the person below me wasn't giving me the right information. They were, they were filtering the information to give me what they thought they, was valuable and they should give me. But if they knew what was valuable, they'd be making the decision. And so you can't rely on other people to filter this information for you. So how does that change when you think about information? Well, pause for one second. Let's talk about how we learn. And so we have a learning loop, which is you have an experience and the experience can be physical. You can do something. You can also read a book. That's an experience. You can talk to somebody, this conversation, you're listening to it. That's an experience. What do you do with that experience? Most people do nothing with that experience. But if you reflect on that experience, you think about the podcast, think about what you're listening, think about what you're reading. It's the act of reflection that creates real knowledge, earned knowledge for you. When you reflect, you create a compression. That compression is sort of like how you remember this knowledge because you can't remember all the details of a situation at any given time. So you remember a compression. A great example of like a compression I have is outcome over ego. Well, if I go back up this loop a little bit to reflection, that means a whole bunch of different things for me, but it encapsulates in these three words. And then you take that compression, that compression becomes an action. So you have a loop, you have experience, reflection, compression, action, and that creates a learning loop. So think about the information that we consume. Most of us, and we have to. So this is not a, a, a negative here. Most of us consume compressions. We consume other people's compressions. We like the sound bites. We like the Twitter. We like the, the pithy statements. And that's fine. We can consume that information, but it's not earned knowledge. And here's the difference. If I go home and I pull out a recipe book and I make a recipe and it turns out perfect and I give it to you and I say, Hey, Owen, what do you think of this? You're like, oh man, you must be a world-class chef. This is amazing. Now, if that recipe goes a little bit awry, a little bit doesn't work. 
I have no idea what went wrong. Did I put too much salt in? Was there not enough heat? Did I bake it too long? What happened? I don't know because I don't have earned knowledge. But the chef, the person who made that recipe, the person who spent hours doing the trial and error, having the experience, the reflection to create the compression, which is the recipe, well, they know instantly. They would taste that and be like, oh, here's what you did. You used the wrong type of flour or you didn't sift it before you did it or you put too much salt in or not enough heat. So that's the difference between earned knowledge and sort of unearned knowledge. And what we need to recognize as investors and people is what areas do I want to have earned knowledge and what areas am I okay with unearned knowledge? But I never want to convince myself that unearned knowledge is real earned knowledge. And so that changes how I consume information because the information I consume becomes my future thoughts. So if I'm only consuming this shallow, this compressed information, I'm not getting all the rich details that I need to do my own reflections on it. I need rich sources of information as close to the actual experience as possible. I want to see people's reflections. This is one of the underrated aspects of old books. New books don't have this so much. I, mean, I think my book does, but like most new books are like, here's a point and here's 10 stories that illustrate this single point. Well, I mean, that should be a blog post. That should not be a book. That's a ridiculous sort of idea of a book. You want a book to be rich, detailed, varied sources of information where you read the introduction and you don't know the whole book. You're, you don't know, like most introductions give you the whole book. You don't even want to read the book after you. Like, I got the point. I don't need 10 stories to back up this point. I understand the general principle. Well, if we go back to old books, they're full of detail. They're rich information. And what we tell ourselves is we don't have time for that today. We're too busy. We're too stressed. We got too much on the go. But that's why we end up with all this shallow knowledge. And the minute we convince ourselves that that shallow knowledge is real knowledge, we get ourselves in trouble. We take unwarranted risks when we're investing. We don't even know what the risks are. We're overconfident about the things that we're doing. And I think there's so much room for us to just improve the quality of our lives by improving the quality of our inputs and take stock. I mean, it'll be December by the time people listen to this. So take stock of who you're listening to this year. Who's in my ear? Who am I trusting? Are they credible? Are they serving me? Am I getting anything out of this? How often do you go through your, your list of followers on Twitter or and, and just like curate it? And you should curate it. You should curate it annually. You should curate it quarterly. The people that you're consuming the people that you are reading, I mean, they have such a big impact on you because they're planting seeds in your head that turn into your future thoughts, whether you know it or not. They're giving you the raw material. The better your raw material is, the better the output's going to be from the factory that is your head. Um, What's your reaction to that? No, I agree completely. I remember, uh, I, I remember doing this with my Twitter feed not too long ago because you want to balance the you want to balance i guess the counterpoints as well right we can't i feel like particularly in this modern era social media becomes like an echo chamber so that where we consume the information from even our media not so much here in australia but through certain parts of the world uh, it becomes quite divided and the 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 news is very left or right there's not much balance in some of the con why are you reading the news why is anybody reading the news when's the last time you read the news and get something useful out of it and the I news don't. is designed in in our world the news is designed 
to incite emotion in you mm. or to make you feel bad about a situation. And that's just ridiculous when you step back and think about it. Why are you consuming something that is designed to make you feel something and not educating you? Talk about lack of insightful knowledge. Mm. If you want to read the news and you're somebody who advocates reading, just read the business news. Anything big will work its way into business news. And business news is sort of like a dialed down version of news. It's less uh, incenting. It's less sort of emotional. Uh, it's more practical. And anything big finds its way in there. I don't read news. I think mm. it's a waste of time. It is literally designed to hijack your brain. It's useless information. There's nothing really good that comes out of reading the news. People think they're informed, and that's ridiculous. You can't read somebody's opinion in a newspaper and be like, I'm informed about this topic. I have an opinion on it. You're just lying to yourself, right? You haven't done the work you need to do to have an opinion on this subject. You've just read somebody else's opinion. You haven't reflected on it. You haven't put it into practice. Mm. I I find that when I go to, uh, say, like family gatherings or extended, like, networks i find in a room i can often be um i feel like i'm i am the quietest person in the room because everyone talks about these you know pop culture things or have references to what happened last week somewhere three thousand miles away kind of thing and i have no opinion because i just simply do not know what's happening. Like well, I, I walk into think, a room and I'm like, think about it this way through this lens, right? Like if you do what everybody else does, you're going to get the same results. Everybody else does. So when everybody else is sitting around and they have all these pop culture references, whether it's a TV show or not, and you're happy with the results in your life, that's great. Uh, but if you're unhappy with where you're at and what you're doing in life, well, maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't be spending time doing this. Why do I even know about this? This is a waste of time. Why do I want to be like these people? Why would I have the same habits they have if I want to get to a different outcome that they have? Mm. And so it's almost like a badge of honor when I go to a party and people talk, start talking to me about shows. Like for the longest time, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. People are like, oh my God, you haven't watched it? And I'm like, no, I'm too busy working. <laughs> and that's okay. I'm choosing that, right? Like that's a good thing. Uh, but no, I haven't watched it. You know, um, mm -hmm. I, I think that that's great. I always took that as like, I'm on the right track. Like I always interpreted that stuff as like positive feedback, even though everybody meant it as completely negative feedback. Like you're an idiot, you're missing out. And it's like, no, you're missing out, right? Because mm -hmm. you're choosing to do this. That's great. But I don't want your life. I want my life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to take a different path because I want to do something different. Mm -hmm. I always, yeah, I always love going to like the, the park or the, forest and just walking around and I never take the, the regular path and it kind of drives people in my life a bit nuts. I just kind of venture through the park and I just think to myself, like, I'm going to, hopefully I'm going to see things that no one else sees. Sure. I might find a snake because here in Australia, there are a lot of those Shane. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think of that as like the, the path less worn is like going to surface some really interesting things that I probably other people won't see, or at least fewer other people will see. So I spend a lot of my time doing that. Um, I might just, I know you've got to run and um, time is of the essence today, but um, I really do appreciate you taking the time, mate, to to chat with me um, right around the other side of the world right now. And I, I got to say, like, the what you've created is an absolutely wonderful uh, creation. And I, I, I couldn't speak more highly enough of, the website, you've got an online course, the book, 
these types of things um, that you do each and every day, it has a profound impact on people right around the world and at a level that's beyond anything that I've found, which is incredible too. So you talk um, in a way that relates to everyone that listens to this, but I know that deep down there's this, as you would say, earned knowledge or you've done the work and it's a very special thing you've created. So I do appreciate you taking some time to, to, speak with me today and share this with our community, but also uh, to time you've taken out to write the book. It deserves to be a bestseller and um, I wish you all the best with it, mate. So, so thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Owen. I really appreciate that. That was a very generous sort of exit to the interview. <laughs>